We have gone through verses in three weeks, going very slowly, to unfold the truth of Jude. Jude began writing a letter of encouragement. He felt that he just wanted to sit down and speak about the common salvation, and yet the Holy Spirit interrupted him with a new thought. He said, I thought it was necessary to exhort you to contend, to put up a good fight for the faith, the body of truth that has been once for all delivered to the saints. He's writing against what we have termed, and even he calls, apostasy or a falling away from the truth. And there were many people in the churches at the time that he wrote it who were denying Christ and walking after their own lusts. And so the Holy Spirit has preserved this as part of his own will and revelation for us. Let's, for sake of context, read verses 1 down through verse 7 because verse 7 is one of the three examples of corporate apostasy. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, that though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. When I was a kid, my parents would conveniently use my brothers as my examples. Whenever they wanted to give me a good example of what I ought to be, they said, be like Jim or be like Rick. Uh, They were good in sports. They were good students. They were valedictorians. They made the marks. And so often there was this comparison. Hey, there's a good example. Be like them. Then I had bad examples that my parents pointed to, justifiably so. One was my good friend Richard Wilhite. And they had a good reason to warn me about him. Uh, He was, do you ever see Leave it to Beaver? I'm dating myself and some of you as well if you nod to this. But there was a character on there named Eddie Haskell. And Eddie Haskell always came on sweet and lovely with Mrs. Cleaver, but behind her back always talked down and filthy and always got into trouble. And she would come in and he'd say, well, hello, Mrs. Cleaver. You look nice today, but when she was gone, he'd be a different. That's how Richard Wilhite was. And they warned me about him. The scripture gives us good examples. Holds certain men and women up as men and women of faith, an example that we ought to follow. And yet, on the other hand, there are bad examples. And the scripture says, don't do that. Don't be like them. Take them as a warning. Paul, speaking of this whole example issue, said in 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened to them as examples. 
and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Now you've read verse 7. And in one sense it's sobering, isn't it? That two cities like Sodom and Gomorrah would be used as examples to a modern church living during times of apostasy. In fact, it says they indulged in sexual immorality. The word means to be totally immersed or to indulge excessively in fornication. How is it that two cities with such a bad reputation of being a bad example are used for the church and are given to us in the New Testament as warnings for believers? It's because verse 7 is prophetic of what would occur in the last days. Back in verse 4, we read about those who turn the grace of our Lord into lewdness or licentiousness. Speaking of a group of people who said, I can do anything I want to, even physically with my body, because I'm saved by grace. They use it as a license to sin. Verse 8 speaks of those who defile the body. And verse 16, those who walk according to their own lusts. Now, this is the vocabulary of the Holy Spirit. And before we start renaming sin to our own soft-stepped design with words like affair, we should get back to biblical terms to see what God thinks about them. Now listen to the words of Jesus concerning Sodom and Gomorrah as a warning for the last days. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, for they ate and drank... They bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven. And it destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Now if you look at Newsletter, papers and magazines like the one we just showed you a little while ago. From any city in America, you will see that the predictions of immorality and falling away from the truth have been pretty much fulfilled in our generation. Our society, I know you know this, but from a biblical perspective, our society is totally obsessed with sex. It is written in every fiber of society. If you don't recognize how pervasive it is, it only means you are blinded by it and caught up in the system. You cannot turn on a television set, cable or not, without getting some kind of innuendo about premarital or extramarital sex. And all the restraints have been pulled down. So much so that many of us are inoculated to the fact that it's as bad as it is. In fact, you ask a person, hey, did you go see da-da-da-da? Oh, um, no, I didn't see that movie. Oh, it was great. Well, it was rated R, but listen, it only had five sex scenes and a few murders and a couple cussing. Not a big deal. It wasn't really that graphic. We become inoculated to it. Robert Lichtner, who wrote a book called Watching America, What Television Tells Us About Our Lives. Now, tonight I'm not on a tirade against television. These are just the facts. This man said, quote, Hollywood's nightly fantasy version of our society has taken on a life of its own and a kind of artificial reality. Examined results of interviews of over 100 Hollywood TV stars 
shows that among these media executives, 93% say they rarely or ever go to church. These are the executives also of the people who produce your films. Three out of four describe their political stance as left of center. Over half do not think adultery is immoral, and 80% see absolutely nothing wrong with homosexual relations. Now, they're telling you what you ought to believe because they're piping all that into your homes. All but 3% of them say that a woman has the right to have an abortion if she so chooses. Two-thirds of them consider television a means for bringing about social reform. Question, whose agenda? Theirs, with that belief system. Virtually every aspect of the American television is influenced by these views. Now, the authors of this book analyzed 620 sample shows and painstakingly cataloged the appearance, behavior, and motivation of 7,365 characters. Their conclusion, that primetime television portrays a world where sexual infidelity is the norm, where people are murdered 1,400 times more often than in real life, and where businessmen are almost always the villains. Interesting and where the only thing religion is good for is getting laughs. Yet this is the distorted world that millions of Americans visit nightly. And they conclude in their article in the book, primetime watchers see society through a distorted lens. It's the television we watch. We've all heard of the Nielsen ratings. Rate television based on what's portrayed. Nielsen rating on television recent surveys said, quote, the average American household has a television set on, uh, set on approximately seven hours every day. Twelve to 17-year-olds watch 23 hours of television each week. You say, well, so what? This is so what? Another book called The Early Window, Effects on Television and Children and Youth, said that during one year of average viewing, Americans are exposed to approximately 2,000 excuse me, 9,230 sexual acts, innuendos, or implied sexual activities on television. 9,230. 80 to 88%, the article said, are sexual acts outside of marriage. How does that square with Judeo-Christian ethic and the biblical view of the sanctity of a marriage relationship? So much so that it's becoming the norm. The Journal of Communication states, TV portrays six times more extramarital sex than sex between spouses. 94% of the sexual encounters, according to the Journal of Communications, on soap operas are between people not married to each other. You say, well, isn't this benign, this idea of watching television? I mean, I just do it to relax. Does it really affect the way people think? Now, come on, think about it. How many times have you listened to a tune on the radio or you've listened to something on television or watched something and you've picked up the little phrase that the commercial had or that the show had that made the show famous or a tune that was going on just started singing it to yourself subconsciously. You didn't even know you were doing it. Pretty soon you think, as you examine the content of those songs, that's filthy. Where did I get that? Well, whatever you sow, this is a scriptural principle, you will reap garbage in, garbage out. It is obvious, in my opinion, why Jude chose Sodom and Gomorrah as one of the three corporate groups that fell into apostasy, the city down south of the Dead Sea. That's because their examples are so relevant, especially in this Western culture. 
A couple of scriptures I'd like to remind you of before we kind of examine the history of Sodom and Gomorrah is one found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that I don't find underlined in many Bibles, but it's there. Flee sexual immorality. doesn't say contemplate it. doesn't say kind of check it out a little bit. Flee it. Run from it. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Now, I struggle along with you, everyone, in this society. We are inundated with messages constantly. You can't go outside your door, turn on your radio, turn on television, have a conversation without some of this stuff leaking through. It's difficult to be light in such a dark world. But, as Paul reminds us, these things are improper for God's holy people. Now, for a moment, let's go back and take just a look at Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't have to turn there because we're going to actually look over these chapters Sunday night. So I don't want to steal all the thunder uh, from Sunday night. It's interesting that we happen to be going through Jude 7 and the section in Genesis on Sodom and Gomorrah contemporaneously this week. But we read about Sodom in the Old Testament. And they have become proverbial, haven't they, for wickedness vile filth, and also God's judgment. Archaeology confirmed, by the way, that at one time, before God's judgment fell on them, as we read in verse 7, that Sodom and Gomorrah, that lie in the Dead Sea, now they're swallowed up underneath the Dead Sea, and archaeology has found the places, that it actually at one time, the area of the Dead Sea was lush, beautiful, and very well populated until God rained fire and brimstone upon it, and we'll look at some of the archaeological and historical implications Sunday night. Anyway, Sodom becomes interesting to us because there was a character who was related to a biblical giant that decided to move there. What's his name? Lot. Remember, Abram was walking through the land and God said, All of it I've given to you. And he turned to his nephew and he said, Go ahead. Walk through it. Take whatever portion you want. I'll take the rest. He gazed longingly to the city of Sodom where there was that immoral behavior. Eventually he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Eventually he moves into Sodom. And as we'll see Sunday night, he's an important gatekeeper in the city of Sodom. He has graduated to become an official. Though he's not a very good witness, they're in the city of Sodom in danger of becoming very much like them. Now listen to what Peter says in a parallel passage of Jude. For that righteous man Lot, that's speaking by faith, righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Do you know that the last mention of Lot in the Bible is we see Lot drunk in a cave, having incestuous sexual relationships with his two daughters, living the rest of his life in misery. What staggers me, folks, is that the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah occurred only 450 years after the flood. That's a short period of time. You'd think that people would remember that. That there'd be enough flood evidence around that people would say, no, 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 wait a minute. God judged people because of this kind of stuff. 450 years after the flood, God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. During that time, the godly man Shem, one of the sons of Noah, was still walking the earth. And even with his testimony... And that in their recent history, 
they fell into sexual immorality. We get to Genesis chapter 18. Again, I'm kind of going over our study Sunday night. But we have that strange appearance of God in Abram's tent. They're having a conversation together. And God says, you know, I wonder if I should tell Abram here what I plan to do to Sodom and Gomorrah since he's a righteous man and he's part of my plan. Okay, I'll do it. He says, Abram, I'm going down to see Sodom. I hear it's wicked, but I want to check it out for myself. Thorough investigation. I hear that it's wicked. Its wickedness has come up before me, and I'm going to judge them. Abraham, at that point, enters into a conversation of begging the Lord to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, no, wait a minute, God. You're righteous. Being a righteous God, what if you found 50 people who lived in Sodom? Would you spare the city? God said, sure I would. Well, great, now that I've got you um, on the line, Lord, would you do it for 45? Yeah, I'd do it for 45. Oh, listen, I don't want to be uh, too bold or anything, God, but since you're just and righteous, would you spare the city for 40? Yes, Abraham, I'll spare it if I found 40 righteous people. Well, that's great. And I was also wondering, God, just how gracious you are if you'd spare it for 30. (laughs) Abraham, I'll spare it for 30. Don't worry about it. Well, uh, since I've got you down to 30, listen, and he goes all the way to 10 people. He knew he couldn't find any more than that because of Lot and his family. At best, they were the only ten righteous in the city. God says, if you find ten in the city, I will spare the city. And then the angels go down into Sodom and Gomorrah to judge the city. By the way, Abraham is an example to us. As we read verse 7 tonight and we discuss the immorality that's going on in our own country, Abraham becomes our example in terms of a good example. If verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah, is a bad example, Abram's a good one. Why? Because the Bible says the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know God's looking for intercessors? He's not just looking for newspaper readers who point the finger at the world and say, naughty, naughty. He's looking for prayer warriors who will stand in the gap and in the midst of wickedness will pray to the Lord that righteousness will be increased, that God's people will raise the standard of holiness And then in the midst of wickedness, light would shine. God's looking for those people. In the book of Ezekiel, we read in chapter 22, God said, I look for a man who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. So I will pour out my wrath upon them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their heads all that they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Then we get over to chapter 19 of Genesis, and I think you ought to turn to it. Genesis chapter 19. Again, this is something we're going to cover Sunday night, probably from a little different angle. But let's look at it. Verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may be able to rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we'll spend the night here in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, 
All the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them carnally. The NIV translates that best in modern vernacular, that we may have sex, sexual relations or just go ahead and have sex with them. Know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Now notice how one-sided this, at this point, compromised man had become. He says, See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you. You can do whatever you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason that they have come under the shadow of my roof. They said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to sojourn or be a guest, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men who were inside reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them, shut the door, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then as we scoot further on in the scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah become classic examples in the book of Isaiah of wickedness and God's judgment upon them. And Isaiah addresses all of the people of Israel as residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the leaders of Jerusalem calling them rulers of Sodom. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of God, you people of Gomorrah. Those two cities have been destroyed long before that time. He said, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have had more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless sacrifice. Your incense is an abomination to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assembly. Now, Isaiah addressed the people of Israel, the rulers of Jerusalem, as rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah, just like Jesus addressed Peter as Satan when he said, Get behind me, Satan. You're only thinking as man thinks, not as God thinks. Metaphorically, he called Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, back in Jude... It says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having, and notice the phrases, given themselves over, given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. See that word strange? It means other than usual. And it's translated in some of the literal translation and even some of the paraphrases as homosexuality or sexual perversion. Here's the idea here. The idea is that Sodom and Gomorrah housed a group of people who had fallen away from God's revelation within 450 years to the extent that they were opposed to God's natural order and therefore God promised to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness. Now that's an example to us. Billy Graham once said, I've only heard him say it a few times, he said, 
If God fails to judge the United States of America for sexual perversion, then God owes Sodom and Gomorrah a deep apology. Because we are coming close, if not already there on the threshold, of the same kind of attitude that Sodom and Gomorrah had. Now, I'm sure if a message was preached by Lot, like this one tonight, in an assembly hall of Sodom and Gomorrah, there would be much apathy, much scorn. Let not our hearts become hardened. That's a past example. Now, I'd like you to turn now to Romans chapter 1. And at this point, get a little insight from Paul the Apostle, who spoke of mankind in general falling away from God, leading into debased sexual immorality. Romans chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Now he begins speaking about wrath, something that contemporary evangelism says little about. Contemporary evangelism is filled with, if you accept Christ, there's blessing and glory, and, all, and, and it's true. Those things are true. Abundant life, blessing follows coming to know Christ. What is absent in modern evangelism is one of the emphases that Jesus underscored so often, and that was eternal punishment and wrath. It's not spoken of much, but did you know that Jesus spoke about hell more than every other biblical figure combined? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, knew the reality of punishment. And he used examples that would stop us in our tracks and have us reconsider. What interests me as I turn to Romans 1 is that Romans is essentially a book of grace. How God loves people, forgives people, and acquits people. Not on the basis of what they do in their practice and their work, but faith in God alone. But first... Before Paul speaks about grace, he speaks about wrath. You see, folks, to Paul the Apostle, the first motivation to come to Christ was the wrath of God that would be poured out upon unrepentant sinners. And before you can understand how to escape wrath, you've got to know what it is. And before you can appreciate grace, don't you need to understand wrath? That's both logical and theological. You have to know what wrath and judgment is so that you can... Go, wow, man, I'm saved by grace. And many people don't enjoy God's grace because I don't think they understand God's wrath. So he says, the wrath of God is revealed. Uh, verse 20, for since creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, if even his eternal power and Godhead. Look down with me at... Uh, No, no, just keep going. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. You see what the picture that he's painting? He starts out saying, man once knew God. But... They were not thankful. They started pushing God out of their thought processes, not including God in their lives. 
They became foolish and futile in their thinking. And eventually we'll read that God gives them over to a debased mind. The wrath of God is one of the themes of chapter 1. It's the theme of Jude verse 7. It's the theme of many of the parables of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is revealed. You've got to understand something about God. He's balanced. There's a perfect balance between His absolute love and His judgment upon sin. You cannot have one without the other. God would not be a just God if He did not judge sin. God's hate is perfect even as God's love is perfect. And you can't have one without the other. By the way, judgment, wrath, is not only an Old Testament concept. How often have you heard people challenge the Bible? Well, the Old Testament is a God of wrath, far different from the New Testament, a God of love. Not true. John the Baptist in the New Testament said, brood of vipers. You really can't read it that way, can you? How would he have said it? Brood of vipers. He'd have gotten down. Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Bring fruits worthy of repentance. He who is coming after me is mightier. He, that is Jesus, will gather the wheat in the barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus, who was God incarnate and also love incarnate, said, Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Also, he said, It is better for you that one of your parts of your body perish than for your entire body to go into hell. I have a question. If wrath, punishment, judgment, something that many of you don't like to hear, in fact, maybe you said, I used to go to a hellfire and brimstone church, but I don't like hearing that, so I left. If it's such a part of Scripture, however, why is it that many Christians deny it or run away from it? R.A. Torrey, a great Bible teacher from a few years ago, said and suggests this is the reason. Shallow views of sin and of God's holiness, and of the glory of Jesus Christ and His claims upon us lie at the bottom of weak theories of the doom of the impenitent. The more closely that men walk with God, the more devoted they become to His service, and the more likely they are to believe this doctrine. Now, is judgment and wrath a negative confession? You betcha it is. It's very negative. No two ways about it. But folks, you cannot get positive until you understand the negative. And it was this negative thing that spawned many people to serve the Lord in the past and become missionaries. It was John Knox who saw the impenitence of England and Scotland that said, Give me Scotland or I die. It was a great missionary team that went to the Fiji Islands who knew the wrath of God upon impenitent men who said when they were going up to the island and the captain said, If you go to that island, you'll die. The leader of the missionary team said, we died before we came. We're ready to go. It motivated them. Look down at verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed Forever. Amen. No society has become more body conscious than this society. 
we're into the body. We want to make it good looking. We want to preserve it. We don't like the wrinkles. Understandably so. We fight age. We want to be a certain way and we follow the, uh, the media presentation of women who are thin and look like this. Of course, they always portray... Uh, one person said um, that uh, the average model is the size of an emaciated woman, at least the models are, and the mannequins in the stores. And, you know, look what these gals have to go through to model those clothes. Something that the average person couldn't do, but they're telling you that's the norm, and if you don't look like that, you're not pretty. And it's, that's the mold, man, that we're being pushed into. That's why Paul said, don't be squeezed into the mold of the world. A society that rejects the God of nature will reject God's order. Ahead of a pornographic empire, in looking at the modern sexual practices of America, wrote, sex is only a biological function like eating and drinking. So let's forget all the prudery about it and do whatever we feel like doing. That sounds a lot like Corinth 2,000 years ago and some of the things going on in the early church. Paul here says they dishonor their bodies among themselves. This may shock you. Maybe it won't. I hope it does. In Indianapolis, Indiana, the newspaper featured an article about child molesters who now have their own national organization and are lobbying in Washington. It's called the NAMBLA, the National American Man-Boy Love Association. They even publish a national newsletter letter for members. They're becoming so bold about their activities that they hold, held a conference recently to say that we've got to stand up for our civil rights to keep child pornography out in the public. And these are the kind of vicious groups that will lobby hard to get their rights. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Second time it says God gave them up. For their, even their women exchanged the natural use. Use is an important word for what is against nature. Likewise, also men leaving the natural use, again an important word, of the women burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. The word use is used often in Greek to mean sexual intercourse. And let me give this verse to you in the Phillips translation of the New Testament. God therefore handed them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged the normal practices of sexual intercourse for something which is abnormal and unnatural. Similarly, the men, turning from natural intercourse with women, were swept into lustful passions one for another. Now, Paul here says they were burning in their lusts. From some of the experts that I have read, these are the experts, whether they're Christian or not, who have said there is a level of passion among the homosexual community that defies passion even among heterosexuals. And look at Lot. Look at Lot in the book of Sodom. When they were blinded, they were wearied trying to get to that door. They wearied themselves through the night because they said, we want to have sexual relationships with those men. In fact, in the United States, it is not unusual for a homosexual man to have 300 partners a year. Now, 
allow me to read to you a very distressing report, not from a Christian, from a forensic expert, a physician, who performs thousands of autopsies every year. In his writings, uh, he doesn't claim to be a Christian. He avoids making moral judgments. But after making many autopsies, he says, quote, When we see brutal, multiple wound cases in a single victim, we just automatically now assume that we are dealing with a homosexual victim and a homosexual attacker. I don't know why it is so, but it seems that the violent explosions of jealousy among homosexuals far exceeds those of the jealousy of a man for a woman or a woman for a man. The pent-up charges and energy of the homosexual relationship simply cannot be contained. When the explosive point is reached, the result is brutally violent. But this is the, in quotes, he says, normal pattern of homosexual attackers, the multiple stabbings, the multiple senseless beatings that obviously must continue long after the victim dies. A San Francisco coroner estimated that 10% of the entire city's homicides were related to sadomasochistic sex among homosexuals. Now, despite all of these things, these forensic experts, psychologists are dare saying that it's normal There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, one church leader said homosexuality is as normal as left-handedness in a right-handed society. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no harm at all that could possibly come. Very different from what we read in the Word of God. Now, The things that have happened in the homosexual... And by the way, you are being attacked by the community. You know that. It's evangelical Christians that are the bad guys. We're the guys that cause guilt upon the homosexuals who are just that way because they were born that way and it's something that was inherent in the gene structure. They can't help it, man. And we are bad to speak out against it, to say that it is wrong. It's not wrong. Of course, this is the same society that says adultery isn't wrong, fornication isn't wrong, sex before marriage isn't wrong, only if you get AIDS. It's the same society that's promoting that kind of activity. They're saying it's not wrong. Because of that pressure, folks, churches are bowing the knee. They're buckling under. Christians don't want to be pointed at by the media or by other people who will make demonstrations or articles about them. They go, I don't want to get into controversy, so I won't say anything about them. I'll just give them what they want. In fact, a Catholic bishop... Bishop Patrick or Bishop O'Connor back in New York City in 1989 said what the Bible said. Homosexuality is wrong. We will not ordain priests who are homosexuals. God loves them. God can save them. We love them, but it's not right. One Sunday morning mass, he had 40 of them march in his aisle, took the Eucharist, the communion, very sacred in the Catholic Church, desecrated, and shot obscenities. Violent protest. And churches are bowing under because of that. They don't want the controversy. They don't want graffiti on their walls. And uh, they don't want the uh, death threats and so forth. I've had a few death threats. Um, Not a big problem. I have an article, however, from an Episcopal bishop I'd like to read to you. He said that Paul was unmarried because he had a secret homosexual problem. This is an Episcopal bishop, a Christian minister of the gospel, who said, quote, Nothing else could account for Paul's self-judging rhetoric. His words about 
the war going on inside. Remember in Romans, the battle of the flesh and the spirit is a fairly classic description of what I understand to be very common in repressed gay males. There's even an organization called Clout, Christian lesbians out together. It's nothing to laugh about. Christian lesbians out together. What are they trying to do? To free Christians from wrong judgmental thinking, to accept homosexuality like everybody else is these days as being norm. So you will be in the minority if you accept the biblical standard of morality. What does God say on this issue? It's obvious. You can't read open-mindedly any portion or any large section of the Bible without coming to the conclusion whether you like this book or not, believe it's of God or not, that whoever wrote this book condemns homosexuality as a sin, not says that homosexuals are bad people, but condemns it as sin, as a degrading, depraved form of activity. The Word of God says that. Now, I have to say, the New Testament says a man can be forgiven of anything. Anything. But... For the unrepentant homosexual, sexual, I say homosexuality, for the unrepentant homosexual, judgment is waiting. Just like an unrepentant adulterer, an unrepentant thief, an unrepentant anything. Listen to what Paul says in the New Testament. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Folks, every person is born in sin, and all of us have tendencies to one thing or the other. The tendency is very different from the practice. If a person has those tendencies and bent toward a homosexual lifestyle, that's different from engaging wholeheartedly in the practice of them, especially saying, it is God's perfect will for my life. Okay, let's admit it. You live in a country that gives you rights. You can believe anything you want. You can live any way you want to, up to a point. And those parameters are being stretched. And... Homosexuality is condoned and you have rights given to you by the government if you choose that lifestyle. And I agree with that, that that is part of our nation. That's just the way it is right now. However, it is ludicrous for a person to say God and his word allows it and endorses it. You are then making God a liar. And you're presupposing something that is not there. I'd like to conclude by saying that in the midst of all this, we need a huge, huge dose of compassion. Say, now wait a minute. Just a second ago, I could hear a pin drop. I mean, that was heavy stuff. Well, that's true. That's scripture. But because homosexuality is sin, that's precisely why it can be forgiven. Any sin, no matter how great, can be forgiven by God. Any person can be changed by God. Listen, if at the moment I accepted Christ into my heart by faith, I could be instantly changed and be a child of God forever. Don't you think God can change propensities within a person? Practices, lives? 
if they're given over to the Lord, repented of and dealt with. I'd like to close with words of advice from a once-practicing homosexual. He was featured several times in Focus on the Family, hosted by Dr. James Dobson. His articles have been written up in Focus on the Family magazine, and he wrote a little article called What Homosexuals Need Most, back from March 1991. He said thousands of men and women have come out of homosexuality, but it is a long-term process. This is what they need. Number one, demonstrate to them unconditional love and acceptance by rejecting only the sin not the person. Now, they'll accuse you of rejecting them as people. That's a common cop-out whenever a finger is pointed at anyone. But reassure them that you accept them as a person, that you love them, that you are only rejecting that which is sinful in God's eyes. Number two, let the person know that there is hope for them. Many times a homosexual feels trapped and does not know that there's a way out. Our God is a God of hope, he writes. And there are now several Christian ministries whose purpose is to help people find release from homosexuality. He's heading one of them called Exodus Ministries that enables people to deal with that issue. Number three, parents should not blame themselves if they discover their child has homosexual tendencies or activities. All parents make mistakes, but homosexuality is not caused by family factors. A person chooses to participate in immoral behavior. These are the words of a once-practicing homosexual. Four, ask forgiveness for past wrongs. Seek to rebuild the relationship. Number five, rely on God's help every day. He says prayer is the strongest weapon we have against homosexuality. And finally, number six, realize that any change God brings about in the person may take a long time and keep on believing that healing will come. Now, Jude said at the end of his book, a warning to us. And we should look that, I think, as we close our Bibles tonight. Verse 22, he says, On some have compassion, making a a distinction or a difference. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Make no mistake about it. Bottom line. All sin is forgivable. God loves every single homosexual on the face of this earth right now. God loves them. Jesus died for them. There is forgiveness, hope, restoration awaiting. Just like there's forgiveness for any kind of a sinner. But the wrath of God will come upon any unrepentant homosexual or sexual offender who continues to live that lifestyle without repentance. They will never ever see the kingdom of heaven. That's that's Bible. That's pure Bible. Now let me lay something else on you as we close. There's something far worse than the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. You think, what could that be? Rejecting Christ. Rejecting Christ is far worse than the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus said to his disciples as he sent them through Galilee, if those cities refuse to turn, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for those for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those cities. And you shake the dust off your feet and you go to a new one. Jesus Christ is the issue. Well, I have a propensity toward this. Hey, doesn't matter. We're all scarred by sin. But that Jesus can bring healing. You accept Him. You cleave to Him. You cling to Him. Don't use Him to 
accommodate your sinful lifestyle and do it in the name of Jesus Christ and call it Christian. Don't sleep around with young girls and young guys and say, oh, they're Christians and we live under grace and oh, we just do it every now and then. Stop sexual immorality. Flee from it. And then come into the arms of a forgiving Savior. He'll forgive you. But it demands repentance. You know that God never forgives outside of repentance? You realize that? God didn't blink his eye and go, oh, you're a victim of your environment. Couldn't help it. It takes recognizing the sin, coming to Christ, repenting of the sin. Forgiveness comes, man. And it's great. Father, we thank you for your uncompromising word. Some of the things we don't like to be reminded of, but we must, because your judgment is coming, even as Jesus Christ is coming. And we read about in the book of Revelation, when he comes, he will have a sword drawn. How grateful we are for the gift of salvation, of grace, being saved apart from works, being saved in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that your forgiveness extends to the homosexual, the heterosexual, the thief, the idolater, anyone who comes. And Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us to change us day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.